Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. WITF's Real Life, Real Issues Juvenile Justice Series continues today with a look at the role of families in the juvenile justice system. During our series of shows this week, we've heard from everyone that the family is a crucial part of the juvenile offender's progress toward rehabilitation or turning their lives around. But often, families say they weren't respected or given information, while other times families have not been cooperative. So we're going to talk about the role of families on today's program. Our guest, Wendy Luckenbill, who is uh, with the Mental Health Association in Pennsylvania. She's the Child Policy Coordinator. She's also been a leader in developing policies for changes in the juvenile justice system. And Wendy, you have so many titles that uh, I'm not going to list them all, but uh, thank you very much for being with us today. Are you there? All right. Apparently, Wendy is not on the on the line. But uh, Mark Benedetto is the chief juvenile probation officer in Mercer County. Mr. Benedetto, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Since I uh, can't get to Wendy on the phone right now, uh, I'll I'll start with you, Mark. Uh, How important from uh, the the juvenile probation officer perspective are families when a juvenile becomes involved in the system? Well, I think it's a primary it's a primary importance. I think if you would talk with any probation officer, probation department throughout the state, everyone would agree that to uh, in order for the child to make any progress within his own behavioral issues, the family has to participate, has to be part of that that dialogue, has to be part of that plan. We have done we've taken uh, tremendous strides over the last five years since implementing the juvenile justice system enhancement strategy to uh, look at some of the criminogenic needs of the youth, uh, developing a case plan that involves uh, the parents and child and any other significant other in the family to really uh, identify the driver behind the behavior to uh, obviously work with a plan that's going to be specific and individual to that individual and family to have better outcomes. So we've gotten really, we've actually done a, a real, real good job here in Pennsylvania over the last five years, even prior to that. But really, the last five years since our juvenile justice system enhancement strategy came into play has really begun the process of standardizing the the approach to families across all counties. Now, you just mentioned the Pennsylvania Juvenile Justice System Enhancement Strategy, or JJSES, and we'll talk about that throughout the program. Uh, Wendy Luckenbill, are you there? I am here. Okay. I'll I'll ask the same question of you. Uh, How important are families when a juvenile becomes involved in the system? Well, we're absolutely critical, and we need to figure out how to actually participate and partner when, you know, up until the reform that Mark and I have been leading with all our other partners across the state, there wasn't a clear role. So families were expected to participate, but a lot of times families couldn't figure out where it was that they could add their voice and where they'd be welcome and where their their ideas weren't really welcome at all. So it was really confusing. I think things are getting better. We are critical not only for um, the time that a youth spends in juvenile justice, but when they're done. Uh, and ready to move on to the next step in their life. You, you know, both of you have, have said, you know, Mark said the last five years, and uh, Wendy, you just said that uh, uh, things have been getting better. Uh, the, the thinking always wasn't always that way. What changed? Well, I think that everybody was really focused on on the youth. So when a kid gets in trouble, you want to make sure that they're not getting in more trouble. And it became a relationship between the juvenile justice system and the youth. And many times the family was an afterthought. Um, 
that they that they would be partnering, but there wasn't a clear role. So now it's really changed so that decisions all along the way are made with the family. So the family goes in, meets with the juvenile justice professionals in the juvenile probation office. They're part of the discussions in the court. They're part of the discussions as they're making what we call a case plan. And we're really teaching the juvenile probation officers how to partner with families, which maybe isn't that easy because maybe the family is scared or they're um, uh, angry or they're alienated and embarrassed by their child who's done some crazy things and now the parents are in trouble and taking off work. So there's a lot of factors that come into bringing a family in as a partner, and and we've actually been teaching the juvenile justice professionals how to support the family. So that, I think, probably, Mark will agree, is the biggest change, is we're trying to be thoughtful in the way that we bring families into the process instead of just expecting that they'd understand a system that's very different than anything you encounter in your day-to-day life as a, as a, as a parent. Um, up to that point. Mark, what uh, Wendy just described is is so true. Uh, when she was talking about, uh, you know, the families may be embarrassed, uh, may not know what's going on in the system. Uh, this isn't exactly like a PTA meeting or a parent-teacher conference or anything like that. I mean, we're talking about uh, sometimes some very serious charges. Well, yeah, right. And the juvenile justice system, again, remember, this is not the criminal justice system. It's, it's not uh, crime and punishment. The uh, the, you know, our, our philosophy in juvenile justice has always been treatment, rehabilitation, and supervision as far as what the, the cornerstones of what we do. And that's been here since the Juvenile Act's been in place. So that, that whole concept of working with children and families is not necessarily as foreign as you might think. I think that any uh, probation officer knows will know flat out that if they're going to work with a child, the family has to be on board. And, again, I've been around since 1981, long time. Uh, and I've been working with families and children for a long time. So the bottom line is we, we recognize there, there's a need to engage families. We understand that. Uh, I think that what we've done over the last few years, or maybe even longer than that, is really try to quantify that a little bit underneath the strategy. And uh, the framework underneath the JJSES spells it out very nicely. Uh, we've done a lot of things in this process to, uh, in JJSES. One is really training probation officers to look at uh, the strengths of the youth, uh, use what we call motivational interviewing to uh, try to engage the stages of change in the child and the family. And really, the, the probation officer that today is is a hundred times different than it was when I first started, and and quite honestly, they're they're much more in tune with the issues surrounding the child and family, and really developing that case plan that's specific to those needs. So, really, I think that uh, when you talk about you know the involvement or what has changed, I think that different counties are in different levels of involvement with families in the past. JJSES has done this standardized approach now, which, uh, again, based on research, based on things that we've, uh, we've spent a lot of time looking at this in, in terms of what is best practices and, and, really, uh, and really selecting those uh, techniques that would best improve our outcomes. And we, we look at, we me- we're measuring our recidivism two years after the child's closed the case. We're really taking a lot of lo- a strong look at our quality assurance piece to make sure we're doing things to the fidelity of the model, for example, MI, or any program that we're running, like an evidence-based program that would be uh, uh, basically assigned to the child's criminogenity. So I could go on and on right now, so let me stop, and I'll let you ask the question. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> what, I, what I wanted to do is, you know, this is the, the third part of our four-part part series this week on juvenile justice, and something that uh, you mentioned, Mark, and I just wanted to provide a little bit of background in case this is the first time that someone is tuning in this week, that there are big differences between the juvenile uh, system and the adult criminal court, that this is not not criminal court. Uh, and, you know, some of those big differences, of course, is cases heard before a judge rather than a, a, a jury, that uh, the, the focus is on the juvenile and uh, what can be done for a better outcome rather than uh, punishment, uh, you know, trying to uh, seek some treatment or, uh, you know, work with the child and the family. But it, it is, I, I think that, uh, you know, with all those things said, you know, you both have called it an evolution in so many words that it, 
I think just in the last five years, maybe 10 years, that uh, we are seeing that uh, the, the role of the family has taken on uh, more importance. Now, I don't want to turn this to a negative, but let me just ask this question. Um, you know, Wendy, you were involved in a series, and Mark, maybe you were too, uh, involved in a series of focus groups that spoke for what many were thinking. One of the things that you heard was that families often felt like they weren't being respected, they were being looked down upon, and that they were being blamed for their child's behavior. And that focus group kind of ex- expressed some of the frustrations that some parents were feeling, right? That's absolutely right. Yeah, we interviewed when we started talking about how do we improve family involvement because we didn't even have a baseline. All we know from the data that Pennsylvania currently collects um, formally is whether a child's living in their home with their parent and whether the parents are both there or they're living in separate homes. So that's all we really knew. So we didn't even have a baseline. So we thought... Let's go out and talk to people. So we talked to over 200 people. We we gathered them in groups. So we talked to judges. We talked to families. We talked to defense attorneys, psychologists. And we said, you know, what's going on with family involvement? And what we heard from families was not what the juvenile justice professionals, including the ones who were helping us interview these groups, thought was happening. So one thing is, from the perspective of the family, it looks a lot different than what the professionals think is happening. So they didn't realize families were feeling quite as alienated, quite as overwhelmed as they really were expressing that they did. And then there's there's a difference from case to case, from probation officer to probation officer, county to county. Like Mark says, we're really trying to get a consistent approach where it was much more you know, sort of do do what you think is necessary um, with a family. So families were saying, hey, my child was taken out of court and put into placement, and I couldn't get a hold of anybody to even know where they were for weeks. You know, so that kind of input was shocking and really made everybody say, we've got to get more thoughtful about that. And that is where our family guide in 2012, um, I think, has helped in a very um, – concrete way you know because when we said well let's at least get some information for families what are you doing and we went county to county some counties had information on their websites some counties had a one pager it looked a little different from county to county what the information was but it wasn't comprehensive we thought how can we get a comprehensive guide for families that's consistent and and we have that it was published in 2012 it was written by families and juvenile justice professionals we've given out over a hundred thousand copies so far so anybody can go into their juvenile probation office and get a copy of this very nice thin book that fits in your pocket or your pocketbook but explains everything from the knock on the door and how you feel when that police officer is letting you know that they've just arrested your child all the way to um uh to aftercare and and leaving the juvenile justice system importantly it talks about collateral consequences like a family that's in public housing may not be allowed to bring their adjudicated um, child home into that house uh, because of regulations so there's there's everything in here but most importantly it says what can i do as a family in each step along the way who are the people i'm working with and what do i need to do to participate so really this is the national standard the guide that i have i share it with states all across the country who do not have this it's also available on our chief's council website and and you can find family guide to pennsylvania's juvenile justice just by typing it in but boy to have a little handbook to tell you what you're going to encounter in this very complicated but you know maybe friendly system maybe not um that's been i think uh a ground changer. Well, we are going to talk about many of the themes that are in that booklet and some of the other parts of uh, of what you, uh, the information provided to parents and the family as well in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and nine nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart. Real Life, Real Issues Juvenile Justice Series continues on Smart Talk today. We're talking about the important, the crucial role of the family in juvenile justice. Our guest, Wendy Luckenbill, who is with the Mental Health Association in Pennsylvania. She's the Child Policy Coordinator. She's been a leader in developing policies for changes in the juvenile justice system. Mark Benedetto is Chief Juvenile Probation Officer in Mercer County, Pennsylvania. If you have any questions or comments, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can also leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Now, we were talking about um, some of the reasons that uh, we, we came up with, uh, or I say we, you came up with uh, uh, some of the policies and some of the changes in the juvenile justice system involving the families. But I, I do want to go back before we get into uh, some of the, the recommendations made and what works, what doesn't work. Uh, you know, we talked about many times families kind of being left in the dark, not knowing what was going on with their child, what to expect. Communication is a big part of that, and we'll discuss it in just a moment. But there were times and there were families that weren't very cooperative, correct? That's right. Certainly. And explain that. I mean, this is kind of a, I, I want I, to use a cliche, kind of a two-way street. I mean, it, 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 the research has shown that the role of the family is crucial, but if the, if the family's not going to be cooperative, it makes it much more difficult. Right. And, and Scott, I just want to mention that I was with the Mental Health Association during most of this work, but the last couple of years I now work with Community Care Behavioral Health as also the family voice there. So that's a managed care organization responsible for the behavioral health in 39 of our counties um, under the medical assistance program. So one of the things that's really important in the work that we've been doing is to acknowledge the problems that um, families bring to this equation. So first of all, when we were looking to, to, to write this guide, I looked around at all the other guides that were out there, and you know, they said, do not talk to the probation officer. Do not talk to the court. Get your kid out of juvenile probation as soon as possible. So that was the national wisdom out there from defense attorneys and other people that were supporting families. But there's also a sense in the community, I think, that you don't want to mix with the law. You know, you don't you don't want to cooperate with people that sort of have your child under their control, and you just want to avoid that as much as possible. That's one part of it. The other part of it is families bring a lot of baggage to this relationship. So they themselves may have had bad experiences with government authorities. Maybe their family was in child welfare and they were taken away from their own families as a kid. Or maybe they're carrying drug and alcohol problems. They don't want anybody in their house because they don't want anybody noticing what's happening, you know, in their house that might get them in trouble. So there's all kinds of reasons why families um, are reluctant to work with um, authorities, or they just may have a really hard time parenting kids. You know, one of the things that um, we know is families expect at some point that the government is going to take, uh, most families, that government and authorities will come over and fix their kid. So I know Mark's gotten the phone calls, everybody I've ever talked to in justice has gotten phone calls that say, take my kid. I'm sick of him. He won't listen to me. You take him for a while. And juvenile justice is not going to take your kid. And so then that's, that's, that's confusing because you thought you could call up the police and have your kid arrested and have him removed from the house. And lo and behold, you're actually responsible to the, for your child till they're 18. So huge stuff. And, you know, the other thing is 
juvenile justice is sort of our avenue of last resort. So we've tried to get help from our family doctor, or we tried to get help from our minister, our neighbor, our mom, or dad, or you know the school, and 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 the last the last people that hit our family is juvenile justice. Mm-hmm. When everything else has failed, the mental health services haven't been what they needed, and uh, and juvenile justice now comes in to clean up maybe 12, 14 years of failed interventions, and it, and it's a tough partnership at that point. Mark, what kind of support is there for the families then? Well, Scott, I tell you, there's uh, Wendy. Wendy hits it right on the nose with a lot of a lot, a lot of thinking behind why why parents will not engage with us. But you have to understand, first of all, um, parents are not seeking our 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 interest, our, our involvement. Their child commits a crime, so this this social legal system has to. You know, we have to work through both the legal piece, which the child has their rights, uh, Fifth Amendment rights, is a process of, 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 of obviously finding them guilt or innocent, which, again, can, can actually overlay into the probation department that we're part of that team to find them guilty. You follow what I'm saying? So we come in with, like, being a partner, in, in, at least in, in some presence that we have this, uh, we are involved with their prosecution and not really in the best interest of the child. But that's really not our role. Our role is, in the, in the, is really to obviously look at the there's a balanced restorative justice um, process that came into play back in the late 90s. And BARGE was really this, the foundation of our JJSES. And that's really holding a child accountable, develop competencies in the child, public safety, and then services to victims. So our, our system in juvenile justice has, has evolved over several, several years and decades, kind of like moving forward, and the family has kind of moved along with us. So when you're talking about family in, involvement in juvenile justice and what we need to do, what we're doing in our system, now I, I have to step back for a moment, because we, there's a, where's the Council of Chief Juvenile Probation Officers that is in existence right now? And actually, the Family Involvement Committee is a, is a committee underneath the entire uh, uh, Chief's Council. So we are involved with discussions in all elements of, of the system and family involvement being part of it. When you look at our juvenile justice system enhancer strategy, there's a framework and there's these little blue arrows underneath that has family involvement and arrow going both left and right that go that that is simply means that family involvement is involved the entire process throughout the entire time the child is in our system. That's from the beginning of adjudication to disposition to you know all through the process, family engagement and involvement is is part of that. So we are taking the effort to really make the family involvement piece a primary, and it is a primary objective of of our entire juvenile justice system, even taking it far enough to uh, look at developing those professional alliances with parents and children and families that we're dealing with. And and our staff and probation officers have been trained on what we call four core competencies, which looks at uh, how to in- improve their abilities to, you know, the, to, to work with families and children, you know, increasing compliance with treatment. There's, a, there's, there's been a lot of work done in, by a lot of other committees underneath this, uh, this framework that, that really supports the family piece. So I guess uh, to, I, I don't have a real good answer because uh, there's a lot of information to share, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of interest and a lot of commitment by our system to improve the involvement of the family. Uh, our committee that Wendy and I co-chair are, are, is really, that's our role, is to continue getting that voice into the community, into the, into the counties, to make sure that we are in tune to families' needs. But there's also, there's also the legal piece. There's also the idea that there's a child has committed a crime. There has to be some form of consequence, if you will, some kind of, uh, you know, there has to be some legal result here and and that that's that's the that's the game okay right. go ahead oh what i was going to say is we have a phone call here from a listener i wanted to get him on the line paul is in mechanicsburg paul you're on the air good morning scott uh good morning to your guests as well morning uh morning. i just had uh, two comments uh i picked up on uh, one of your panelists uh said that she had uh, a handbook that she gives out to uh the families um one of them was a comment based on the uh, the situation with public housing. If the, the juvenile commits a crime, and uh, they may not be put into placement, but they are put on probation. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the current rules and regulations of the public housing would, uh, as she said, I think um, 
deny that child from coming home. So where do they go? And the, the second comment would be in comparison of the juvenile system with the adult system. Um, if the juvenile is, uh, has a probation officer, they're considered a juvenile, even in court. They're given the title, juvenile. But when the adult does the same thing and they're under the same situation, uh, an assault case or uh, a minor possession of a small amount of uh, drugs, they're given the uh, stereotype of offender for the rest of their life. They don't get to wash their hands and walk away from that title, ever. Okay. All right. Thank you very much for your call. I think he's just looking for uh, some uh, comment there. What about the public housing aspect of this? Mark, you know, I'd, I'd appreciate if you'd take both those uh, questions. Sure. Uh, first of all, um, that to me is not accurate, at least in my county. I know that uh, public housing has policies specific to their own uh, agencies throughout the uh, state. And I know public housing in our department, first of all, Juvenile, juvenile delinquency is confidential. Any, any child coming into court, that is kept confidential. Uh, that's not publicly uh, put out there. It's not in the paper. Uh, so no one would really know the child is under supervision of the probation department from the public housing by any means other than if the parent would tell them. So uh, first of all, I don't know how that individual would, would know, would, would be identified as being a delinquent child. That's uh, one of the reasons we're doing this series yeah. this week is because right. the public doesn't know a whole lot about it because everything is right. done in confidentiality. Right. That's one of the, that's one of the, uh, one of the foundations of juvenile justice that is this child is looked upon as being someone who can be rehabilitated. The idea is that you don't want to put that criminal stigma on him. You don't want to, again, we want this individual to become a productive, sense, uh, productive member of society. So you want to eliminate some of those things that might cause those barriers to, to, to achieving that. And so the, the system has been crafted in a way to allow this individual that has a child that has, quote, made a mistake, if you will, and one that's not of, of significance where public safety is really the, comes into play first, but a child that has made, made an error and uh, then to work with rehabilitating him. So the idea is to eliminate that stigma is that's one of the reasons why you have delinquency versus criminal offender. Um, the, the language has been purposely tooled that way to kind of keep it separate systems. So to answer the question about the public housing piece, there would probably, and I know in my county, that's not an issue. I've never heard that here. It may have occurred somewhere else. Again, 67 counties, there may be policies or some form of uh, something within a housing uh, the housing authority that, that doesn't permit that. I don't know. So I, I can't speak to that other than what I know. All right. Let me uh, go into you know some of the the research and the results of that research and your your focus groups that you've done. Some of the common themes from what you've learned: availability and access to effective early prevention and intervention. This is something that you heard from your focus group that uh, families. This is something that they're looking for. Wendy, talk about that if you would. I mean, the, the best outcome here is if. The child never gets involved in the system to begin with. And I think that's what we're talking about with access to effective early prevention and intervention. That's exactly right. And actually, all these findings were things that arose across the group. So it wasn't just the families that are saying that. It's the judge that's saying, geez, you know, this parent has been asking for help since the child is three years old, and now they're 13 and before me, and, and now we're tasked to try to undo all the years of not getting help. So some things have really changed in the last 10 years or so. Um, it used to be that you couldn't get emotional and behavioral health services for your child until they were maybe 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. Oh, we don't want to put a label on a child, you know. It's just they're just growing up. It's just it's just developmental problems. Well, that that has really changed. Um, we have um, parent and child interactive uh, treatment. There's all kinds of new um, resources out there so that a family who's looking for behavioral health help, if, if their child just doesn't seem to be able to behave in ways that allow everybody to be happy and, and progress, then they can reach out to their uh, mental health uh, authority in their county and get help for their child. So that's, we know early intervention works now and we've seen it 
um, and, and we're getting the help for families earlier. And then the approaches that we have towards families are very different. There's something called uh, multisystemic therapy. Um, and, and I talked to a family one time and he asked them, well, what's different about this therapy from all the other therapies your child had had from the time they were six? They have been actually placed in psychiatric hospitals there for a week and then sent home uh, there to a residential treatment facility sent home the mother systemic therapy um, she said it's the first time anybody asked me what i thought so we really know we have a technology about getting everybody focused on the wellness of the kid getting the family um, in there as an expert on their own child and and turning things around so i believe that's different the other thing that's different is, and Mark, maybe you'll want to speak about this, is we know a lot more about diverting kids out of the juvenile justice system for those mistakes that all kids make, but mistakes that need to have a response, whether it's stealing their friend's bike or punching somebody in the nose. Uh, we know that kids make mistakes, and we can support the family and the community to turn that child around. So early intervention um, is something we have research on now, and we know that it's very, very effective. There's also something called um, PBIS, so Positive Behavior Interventions and Supports. There's of over um, three or 400 schools, maybe it's 500 now, that are using that approach to kids, so responding to all kids universally with positive approaches and so forth, and they're finding that referrals for discipline go down to almost zero. So we know there's a lot we can do to change that trajectory of uh, school-to-prison pipeline, um, but we need to get in there early. You know, we're Mark, talking... Do you want to say any? Oh, sorry. No, what I was going to ask is, and, and either one of you can uh, weigh in on this, uh, is that, uh, yeah, we're talking about uh, how crucial and how important the role of families are, but uh, at the same time, you know, something you just mentioned, Wendy, schools. Uh, when a child reaches four, five, six years old and goes to school, that's where uh, you know, teachers, other students, uh, administrators see the child. And if there are some behavioral issues, most often or very often, I should say, that, uh, you know, the school is like the first one to notice it. And, you know, they have do have some some history and some knowledge in that. But my my question is, what role does the school have in communicating to the family that we think there's an issue here? Yeah, and I'll, I'll just go first. It, it's absolutely critical that you establish a partnership right away that uh, the family does not feel like the school is just demanding medication because we've heard that over the years. Don't bring your kid back till they're on Ritalin. Um, and that's not the approach that's, that, that needs to be out there. So there's something called response to intervention that schools use now. And they try to figure out, it, can we move the child's seat? Can we make sure they're having breakfast in the morning? Can we make sure the family feels supported to uh, get information about the school's behavior, every, the child's behavior every day, reinforce that at home with more positive supports for when the child was behaving? So there's, there's all kinds of approaches now that, that should be in place. Um, but the school becomes the window that we see the child through and they are they are the other partner in that child's uh that child being uh, mentally healthy mark let's go back to i want to go back to some of the findings and some of the recommendations uh, one of the big ones and we've touched on this throughout the program today is communicating respect that uh, this is something that uh, is is one of the keys to uh, that family uh, system relationship, correct? Absolutely. In what the, way? Well, I think you know. Obviously, respect piece is is a two way street. You know, you have to uh, they have to approach the the family so they as a collective body that we both are there for the same reason. Uh, we're there for the benefit of the child and to have the child succeed. Again, there's been the system has done a nice job in taking programming to the uh, parents so they participate in the case plan. Once a child is adjudicated and found delinquent and placed under our supervision, there's a process in place that uh, 
when, when, so I, I need to go here real quick so you can understand how we engage families across the board. In the beginning of the process, uh, we will, the probation officer does a social investigation. It means that they will meet with the school officials, police, uh, discuss, um, fam interview the family, the child, uh, mental health, drug and alcohol, any other, any children, youth, any other agency that was involved with this child in the past, you know, district judges, pull that, all that record information together and really get a, get a clear picture of the child. At that point in time, the probation officer then performs what we call a YLS, or a Youth Level of Service, which is our risk assessment tool, which does two things. It identifies the child's risk to reoffend, so there's low, moderate, high, and high risk, and it also identifies uh, the top criminogenic need. That's a new term in our system. Criminogenic need is simply a behavior that drives the drives the problem behavior. It's it's your it's uh, so we have a the youth level of service is a is a tool that's it's been used across the state by all departments. Uh, I think except one in Mercer in uh, in the state. So the YLS identifies that criminogenic need, and, and the child and the parent are part of that assessment piece. They're, they're, they're brought into that understanding as to where we're going with the child, why we're making decisions about his behavior, what programming we're going to select, because the probation officer now has takes a look at his YLS, all that social history, and then matches the appropriate program to the child's driving criminogenic need. And we will now use evidence-based programs programs that have been tried and true, research-driven, if you will, just like Wendy discussed MST, multisystemic therapy is norm for delinquent behavior, and it works with children and families, and its, it's, a, it's approach is to look at drug and alcohol, family issues. It, it, it's, it's a broad-based kind of program that's looked at dealing with kind of a lot of the issues within children and families. So when you start engaging families, you first you have to, obviously, you have that, that, that whole idea of what we call a professional alliance. You develop that professional alliance. You bring them into the process. There are there's nothing that is not discussed. They are brought they are brought into the decision making piece when developing the case plan. So they're they're participating from the beginning and then through the end. So when we when we develop a case plan, it used to be conditions of probation. Uh, it used to be we would come out with a plan. Your kid's going to do this 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 and this. He's going to have a curfew. He's going to do you know, very direct kind of way of dealing with families. There is still those static kind of conditions of probation that they have to abide by because the child committed a crime. So he has to abide by certain rules of society like we all do. But then there's the case plan, which is fluid, which, which, which moves back and forth, and, and which a child will, will accomplish certain goals in the case plan. And, and really the case plan is really the working document that helps that child and family move through those issues that we have been uncovered and really come up with some solutions. So, so the family's engaged through the entire process with the probation officer. And so that, that in and of itself is really one of the main, when you talk about involvement and engagement, the probation officer has been trained on YLS, been trained on case plan development. Probation officer trained what we call graduated responses now. The graduated responses are, are not, are looking at like positive reinforcement as opposed to just consequential kind of things. Again, it's that whole idea of like, of, of moving the child through these stages of change. And it, that's what motivational interviewing teaches uh, probation officers, how to get the child from the pre-contemplative stage to a contemplative stage and then to the action stage to actually begin the process of changing their behavior. And we know in our system now that uh, cognitive behavioral interventions are, are the approaches best used for delinquent youth that look at thinking errors, look at uh, ways your, your brain is, is, is assessing things. There's a whole whole body of work out there regarding that. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. WITF's Real Life, Real Issues Juvenile Justice Series continues today. We're talking about the role of the family. Our guest, Mark Benedetto, who was Chief Juvenile Probation Officer in Mercer County, and Wendy Luckinbill, who has been very involved in uh, creating policy for the juvenile justice system in Pennsylvania with a real focus on the family. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. I want to go right to some of the issues that uh, that families and uh, kids are facing today. You know, I've heard a lot about uh, this week as we've been discussing juvenile justice about mental health and about substance abuse. I want to get you, uh, your sense. And Mark, I, I think I'll start with you since, you know, you're dealing with uh, some of these uh, these children every day. 
is that what's driving most of uh, you know the kids who are who are getting involved in the system that there's a mental health aspect to it or a substance abuse aspect to it? I'll tell you, Scott. The uh, the co-occurring disorders that you're referring to are are part of the children that we deal, are part of the problems with children we deal with, but they're not necessarily the driver behind the child's behavior. I think that there are, again, it's a case-by-case situation. I would think that uh, if you would look at our data, and again, we're collecting data now. We can tell you, uh, we being the whole state can tell you what's driving the child's behavior. We look at our YLS and we identify our criminogenic needs, and there's these top four criminogenic needs that drive behavior, antisocial personality, uh, antisocial behavior, peers, peer relations and family circumstances. Those are your top four dynamic risk, the dynamic risk, uh, uh, criminogenic needs risk factors, if you will, in, in, the, in the children that we deal with in our system. Mental health and drug and alcohol, uh, mental health, first of all, is not a criminogenic need. It's, it's not something that, that we can really focus on in our system. We're not the professional mental health provider. We will absolutely partner with, our, with the folks from mental health to work with them when we have a child in this in this situation. So we have a lot of partnerships with uh, with other agencies and organizations that are the professionals in drug and alcohol, mental health, ID, whatever it might be. So we focus on the behavioral aspect and we try to find that driver that's actually pushing that child into the delinquent into delinquent behavior. And so when I mentioned those four top four criminogenic factors, that's really what's driving the kids in our system for the most part. But we do know that uh, we have an opioid crisis here in uh, Pennsylvania and really across the country. And I I wonder whether there are more young people who uh, are getting into the system because they've been using opioids. I'd like to take that real quick, Scott. Um, We are dealing with that in our county, as is most counties. And um, I chair a, a, a collaborative prevention committee called the Communities That Care. You mentioned prevention earlier in the program. And I didn't have a chance to mention this, but there are a lot of collaboratives out there that are working with the risk factors that contribute to behavior problems, okay? One is the community's care model. It's research-based, and uh, really it's a, it's really uses data coming out of the schools. You mentioned the schools and what to do with the schools are doing. A lot of schools in, your, in, in Pennsylvania, they, uh, they administer a thing called the Pennsylvania Youth Survey, or the PAYS. PAYS is given to children in 6th, 8th, 10th, and 12th. It's a survey. It's been vetted. It's uh, research-based. And really, it identifies risk factors that contribute to certain behaviors, okay? Now, I don't want to get too deep into that. That's a whole other conversation. But PAYS data will tell you, in our county, the heroin or opioid issue, because they are specific to certain problem behaviors. And the opioid issue in our county, at least in our schools, as reported by the children, is 0.4% in Mercer County. So there is no real opioid issue in our school systems per this study. Why do I tell you that? Well, because when the, when the individual gets to be 19, 20, 21, now you have a tremendous problem with opioid. That in our county is where the problem begins. It's not happening in our schools in our county. We are very in tune to this here. Uh, we are looking at that, where, what are some of the drivers behind the, the opioid issue, and it's not being experienced by the youth in our county at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Wendy, you might have another side of thought on that. Well, I just wanted to add that when we first started looking at, you know, a very thoughtful way um, in a process that ended up with our JJSES, under the MacArthur Foundation, we did wonder how many kids um, in the juvenile justice system nationally, uh, because that's where we're drawing our research, um, have a mental health problem, would benefit from actual treatment. And it's it's between 80 and 90 percent. So there is a a huge uh, need to direct mental health services uh, towards kids in juvenile justice. And even what Mark was talking about with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy that the, the juvenile justice person is providing, that is a low-level behavioral health intervention, even though they're not actually clinicians. But in Pennsylvania, in our original thoughts, um, folks were thinking maybe 3 or 4% of the kids actually had a behavioral health disorder. Now we know it's over 80%. So there is that 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 swirl 
of uh, environmental conditions and then the behavioral health needs. Not every kid that has a behavioral health need is going to violate the law, um, but where kids are violating the law, there's there's that behavioral health need a lot of the time. I'm jumping around a little bit on you here in the last few minutes because I do want to touch on a number of, of topics that we can get in. Uh, but uh, something that uh, does happen that we know, you know, I know that the, the goal of the juvenile justice system, we've learned this week, is to uh, work with the child, work with the family, try to keep them in the home, and uh, that there is a positive outcome. But sometimes uh, there is a child that is uh, taken out of the home and and placed in a, in a facility. But there are even changes there, too. Uh, and this is something that I think is consistent even with from what I've heard with the adult criminal system is that if they're they're placed in a facility that it is closer to home and that the family is encouraged to visit, that the family is encouraged to have communication with that child. Wendy, how important is that? Well, it's so important that we're actually developing other ways to help kids have that connection. So even if there's nobody in the family that is appropriate to be connected with the child, there's something called family finding, where you'll look for an aunt in California or, or maybe just a, 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 a neighbor who could serve as that surrogate uncle. But you absolutely have to have an adult um, that's important in that child's life, youth life, as they're transitioning back. Um, to make that lifelong connection for support. Now, Critical. now when you I, when you're talking about that aunt in California, a neighbor or someone, uh, I assume that you're talking about using technology. Then that uh, there would be video, or just how would that work? Sometimes they fly the aunt in if they have to um, to come to a meeting. It's called family finding. Um, there's also a lot of the probation officers are also using family group decision-making, which actually arose from a partnership with New Zealand child welfare folks and the Maori tribe with the idea that you have to, you know, develop a community of caring adults around a child. Hmm. You know, something that, uh, as I was reading through this research, that many people probably don't even think of, Mark, and I'll address this with you, that even transportation is an issue sometimes, uh, especially if a child is, is in a, has been placed in a facility, correct? Absolutely. Um, there's a, there are a lot of barriers when a child goes into a facility. And uh, if, if, if you would, I don't know if you're aware of this or no, but our uh, numbers in placement since over the last five years have dropped dramatically. Uh, children are not going into placement like as, as much as they used to. Again, you have to understand that there's a public safety issue first. And foremost, that if a child is in danger to the community, that's going to take precedence. Okay, we're talking about most of the other kids, all right, that are are, are, are workable. There, the philosophy now in, in probation is really looking at again engaging the family, using community-based services, programs that are specific to those uh, criminogenic needs. Wendy, Wendy mentioned family group decision making. There's strengthening families 10 to 14. There's uh, uh, family multi-dimensional family therapy. There's uh, yeah, all MST, a lot of family-driven, evidence-based programs out there that probation departments are using, quite frankly, a lot, all right? And they are, again, keeping that, that connection to the parent or a caregiver. You know, that it doesn't, you know, we're talking to caregiver now. It may not be the biological parent. We're talking a caregiver, someone who has an interest in the child. And as far as, like, when a child goes into placement, there's a lot of uh, work being done even right now as we speak. There's a family involvement project that was done by the Bureau of Juvenile Justice Services working with our state facilities, Lloydsville and, uh, and North Central Secure, and looking at just uh, tweaking everything from uh, having a script to call parents to uh, get parents to uh, important, emphasize the importance of involvement within the system, engaging parents just from a facility perspective much more than they've ever had, you know, giving that parent that opportunity to talk with a child if they can't come visit with them, at least some phone conversation, you know, Skyping or whatever it might be. So the idea of keeping the parent involved is, is critical. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of aftercare programming with parents uh, that, uh, uh, where a parent will be working with the facility prior to the child being released, working on those issues, and then trans, you know, that transitioning back home so that when the child comes home, the parent is up to speed with the, with the child, with some of the issues the child's working on. So there's that piece to work with parent skill sets. Right now, our family uh, involvement committee, uh, we're, 
that, uh, we, that Wendy and I chair, I'm involved in developing what we call family uh, curriculum for parents, that probation officers are actually going to be able to go into the home and have basically another tool in the toolkit with and really helping parents dealing with frustrations, setting up consequences. We're developing a curriculum, a uh, skill card, if you will, that we can share with parents to kind of work with parents in, in dealing with some of those behaviors with, that the child is experiencing, as well as with the child. So, yes, the system is, is rolling over the probation officer. The old days of a PO going out there checking on a kid is over. We're doing a lot more work with children and families. We're doing a lot of role-playing, a lot of, like, going through some of these issues. The probation officer is what we all call now change agent, working on changing behavior. Hey, we only have about a minute left. I want to thank both of you, Wendy Luckenbill and Mark Benedetto, for being with us today. I learned a lot, and I'm sure our audience did uh, too. Uh, in, in those 60 seconds, Wendy, I'll ask this question of you. What can we do better? Where do we need to improve? Well, we need to ensure that every family has that family guide and understands what's in it, and then I would be happy. Um, it's in it's in the probation offices. Probation officers are supposed to be talking it through with families, um, and families really need to know that their role is respected and critical. So, Mark, in about thirty seconds, what do you think we could uh, we could stand to evolve even further? I think that remembering that the families have a voice in anything we decide, anything we choose to do, we need to have them at the table, partnering with us. Uh, us being and, and engaging them and, and empowering them to be part of this discussion and this decision-making piece as we're dealing with their children. The family is the critical element in, in, in the in this system in juvenile justice, and they really are are they're, they're sometimes a source of the problem, but they can always be the solution to the problem. So you keep them engaged uh, and and listen to them. Listen. Mm. Wendy Luckabill is a mental, uh, mental health professional, has been very involved in writing policy and coming up with policy for juvenile justice, and especially with a focus on family. Mark Benedetto is Chief Juvenile Probation Officer in Mercer County. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thanks a lot. We wrap up our uh, Juvenile Justice Series uh, tomorrow uh, talking about after a child has been placed in, in a facility, has been, is outside the home. And we're also going to talk about, um, you probably heard about that Supreme Court ruling of uh, juvenile lifers, that uh, juvenile, those committed crimes before, while they were juvenile, Supreme Court says that have to be resentenced. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.